Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy and James Heckman of the University of Chicago delve into the topic of human capital, focusing on how both education and early home life play a defining role in the development of a child. They also discuss how the economist's toolkit is influencing the work of social scientists outside of the discipline. Jim, it's great to have you here today. Uh, this is part of our ongoing series talking about human capital and research going on at the University of Chicago and Becker Friedman Institute on various aspects of human capital and I know you've done a tremendous amount on that, so that's where I want to have a little discussion and, and uh, cover a number of topics. So, what do you think? Where, where, where would you start if you wanted to say, well, where does human capital come into today's discussions and today's <laughs> policy issues? What, is, is it important? Is, is it a key element of things? Well, I mean, we've known for at least 50, 60 years that uh, education as one form of human capital have, plays a huge role in shaping opportunities for people, for creating growth for countries, for really giving opportunities over the lifetime. And um, we also know how much, and a whole body of work has shown how much education and other forms of human capital have actually promote things like health, uh, promote social engagement, reduce crime, not just through wage effects, but sometimes through direct effects about giving information and the like, effects on fertility. So we know that human capital, which is, I would argue, certainly was developed at Chicago in a, in a consistent way, is a major key to understanding economic development and, and basically understanding inequality and just about every major, or at least many of the social issues uh, that confront the societies around the world today. Yeah, I, I know as economists, we often focus on the returns to education in terms of the monetary rewards. Right. And I think what you're pointing out is that that's just part of the story. Correct. There's a lot of benefits of education on things beyond just earning more. Correct. We see better health outcomes. We see outcomes for children that are improved when, for example, spouses are more educated, even if they're not working. And Right. Yes. Those are all important things. Correct. Um, so I think it's that, that non-monetary aspect of education, which, I mean, initially it was very important to actually understand that there were economic benefits. I mean, back when, back when this started uh, here at Chicago, and I guess at Columbia too, where Gary Becker was, and Mincer, there was really a concern that, you know, studying economics of education was a very bad thing. Education was something outside of economics. It was something we did because it was, you know, socially good or something that was fair. But, but the idea that it would have benefits was viewed as somehow too crass. And that's still a point of view that's out there, and not, not necessarily about education anymore, but about a lot of analyses in economics. But I think in the human capital area, we have learned tremendously, as you say, reduce its information. It provides things above and beyond earnings, but it certainly provides earnings gains. So I think it's a key to just about every, every society that's developed and progressed. Look at South Korea, look at Singapore, look at a lot of places that have actually risen rapidly. And China now have really invested heavily in education. They've seen a return. So 
we're still categorizing all these returns. We don't have a full catalog yet of everything that's uh, out there. So we have a lot to learn. There's some work even suggesting some, some benefits to innovation and information, just getting a more educated, integrated society. So I think all this is something really important to, and, and something that we're studying, and it's, we're studying here in Chicago, and I think Chicago has helped illustrate to the world at large how important these questions are. Okay, so, I mean, in terms of education and, and the benefits of education that we've seen, um, they accrue not just when you graduate. I think that's another important point that often people forget about. They think about, well, if I don't get a better job the day I graduate, I didn't benefit. You see, <laughs> talk about that in today's policy debate where people say, well, geez, they went to school, but they didn't get a better job, therefore they didn't benefit. We're overeducated because we didn't benefit from that. They're still doing the same job. But isn't it true that the benefits of education are, a lot of them are later in life. That, you know, the benefits you get aren't all up front. Right. They're backloaded, if anything. Yeah, education opens up the door for a lot of options down the line. And it helps you in things like trying to acquire skills on the job once you get in the job. It makes you a more flexible employee. So if the company changes, they develop a new technology and you're, you have general skills, you can adapt in a way that a very narrowly trained, uneducated person could not. So Henry Ford's factory workers 100 years ago were putting one wheel on a car and that's all they knew how to do. And nowadays we have workers who can come up and change pretty rapidly when the technology changes, who can program and, and adapt in various ways. So, that adaptability and flexibility is a key component of what a good education is. Even in steel mills now, you're getting guys with at least two-year degrees, you know, running computer banks. They're not shoveling coal into a furnace. <laughs> so, so we've actually seen a technology change. And the technology is adapted to the availability of technology. So it's back and forth. So I think understanding education and how the technology adapts to the education and the education adapts to the technology it's an ongoing process, but I think it's really a dynamic that kind of sets the world on fire, and it has. And not just in the U.S., but worldwide. worldwide. That's one of the things you emphasize. That exactly. No, I mean, South Korea is a famous example where now just about everybody's a high school graduate in South Korea, and a huge number of those people are going to college. Just everybody's educated. Now, you may argue it's a little stressful in South Korea. I don't want to talk about the level of happiness in South Korea per se but it certainly has led to the economic productivity. And it's true in many countries all around the world. Okay, let me yeah. talk a little bit about, and we're on a topic that I, near and dear to my heart, which is the relationship <laughs> well, between- you've done a lot of good work on, so. Technology and education. So yes. we've emphasized so far two really different aspects that I think both are important. One is, as technology progresses, it tends to demand more and more educated workers and fewer less educated workers. Just look at the way an automobile is assembled or a steel plant operates or just about anything we do in the Correct. economy. Correct. There's a second aspect that you emphasized earlier that I want to make sure people listening understand, which is it also enhances our ability to adapt yes. to changes in technology. And there, go back to some old history about how farmers, uneducated and educated farmers, responded to the in, innovation of hybrid corn. Exactly. Classic and, article done here in Chicago by Grillicus and showing that literally educated farmers were willing to adapt and adopt new brands of corn which had huge productivity increases. I mean, think about it. I guess if you go back to the year 0 AD or uh, uh, 0... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. The mic has slipped down. 
Oh, it slipped again. No, oh, no, it hasn't. Yeah. Oh, the table's right loose? Oh, the cable's loose. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, it hasn't moved. No, it hasn't. Moved. I've tried not to. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. Fine. Yeah, no, it's too much. I know. Uh, maybe we should arm rust. <laughs> no, but uh, okay. So go ahead when you're ready. But I agree. That's a great topic. The, the Grelicus and the work on hybrid core, Finus's work. There's a whole body of work that's really, um, and it's education. I mean, I think it's even true in the Green Revolution, right? And in, uh, in absolutely India. right. That they weren't highly educated, but they were more educated. There's another example that's even good. I mean, maybe it's not good in the sense of uh, social good, but people ask, how was it that the Japanese army was able to do so well in China in the Second World War? Well, it turned out that the average Chinese soldier had no education. They were illiterate. The average Japanese soldier had four years of education and could read maps and could do things. That gave them a huge strategic advantage. So a little tiny country relative to China was able to field an army that was very effective. Now, that's not a positive effect in the long term. I mean, to wage war isn't something we like. But it's an example that education gave this army flexibility. Japanese army was one of the most educated armies in East Asia. I mean, maybe not the British or the Australians, but they were certainly highly educated. So everywhere we look, we see big effects, right? And like even, to, even the education of the wife in a Chinese farm, if you ask the education of the wife, the effect on the child, the education of the wife on the effect on the productivity of the farm, both of those have been documented in studies. And I think that's what people tend to, to forget, that there's always huge spillover. So, Yeah, I actually had a student once who showed that even after, if you had a more educated kid, even after he moved away, he still added to the productivity at the farm because the family could consult him about what they should be doing and how exactly. they should be running the farm. And, Yes. And, you know, it w even an absentee educated child was productive on the farm because Correct. it helped give that kind of story. Now, that brings us to another point, which is so far in our discussion of human capital, we focused on education. And I agree, education is really important. But I know an area you've done a lot of work on is the household. Yes. And human capital is not just produced in the classroom, it's also produced in the household. And right. Tell me a little bit about that, about well, what you think is important to know. Well, this, this line of work really integrates two different lines of work in Chicago we talked about. One is the human capital work that went back many, many years, Scholz and Becker in particular, but Mincer, who was really, although he's never on the faculty, was around a lot and uh, certainly was highly influential, and Lewis and others. But it also the economics of the family. And I think at one point, these topics were viewed as very disjointed. And I think what we've come to understand is that parents and the early life conditions play a huge role in shaping the human capital, the skills of children. And so we have a much broader notion of what education is. It's more than just, it's not just somebody going to a board and lecturing to a bunch of people. Uh, it's actually this one-on-one -on -one interaction, parenting, and understanding how parent-child interactions lead to actual production of skills is a huge and active area of research. And so, so the household is, of course, the place where all of this interaction really begins, and it's necessary to the life of the child. I mean, but we found in a lot of our research that kids who have big gaps at the time they enter the formal school system more or less maintain those gaps, at least in terms of relative ranks, 
you know, much 12, 13 years later when they're graduating or not graduating from high school. And so the early skills that are produced there, uh, both social, emotional skills as well as cognitive skills, play a huge role. I recently came across a really staggering statistic. I think it's true, by the way. There are a lot of, there are <laughs> a lot of facts here that aren't true. They sound very tantalizing, but there's one that was true. And that is apparently, there was some feeling, some studies by, by, by a musical psychologist, they call themselves, or musical developmentalists, that if the, in the period of six months to 12 months of age, this is the claim, I'm not saying it's true, I don't know it for a fact, but if, if they're exposed to some kind of musical sounds, and a kind of pure musical sounds, that 10, 15 years later, they're gonna have much better ability to really understand the tone, and to stay with tones, and to recognize tones. They were taking this one step further and saying that kids who were raised in Chinese environments, which are more monosyllabic and their more tone is kind of flat and level and more clear, it's a tonal language, right? You speak in tones. That those kids actually had greater musical ability than, than Western kids who, where tone was much less important to language. So I'm offering that as one of many examples. I'm not endorsing that idea, but it's consistent. There are cases, though, that really are. If you, a kid is born for example, uh, with a cataract on its eye, and you don't take it out, you know, in the first year or two, literally, the sight will never develop. I mean, with current technology, maybe something will be invented down the line. So we do know the early years are important, but they're more important more generally. I mean, it's not like we have rocket science precision. You know, it has to be at two, two months and three days, you have to do this. That's the kind of fake precision. But the early years play a big role, and it's the family. It's the family. It's the mother, especially, the mother and the father, and then gradually the kid expands out. But those early days are really crucial. And we've learned that that's important for, for explaining inequality and also for addressing problems, problems to address inequality in an effective way. So that's, that's where I think. So I think it's the integration of those two that's a very exciting area that we're doing a lot of here in Chicago. I really, I, I would agree 100% with that. And I, I wanna come back to something else you said that I think is important, is we tend to think about both education and family as producing human capital and thinking of that as test scores. Oh, right. And, and, and one of the things <laughs> I know you've been big on your research is that human capital is a much broader concept than just how well you can score on the SAT or any you know, achievement test. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because I think human capital gets a bad rap if yeah. it gets pushed that too far that way. Well, I think there's an interesting piece of history. I can't help but go back and talk a little bit about it. At the time that uh, Gary Becker was writing his book on human capital, going on in psychology was something called the cognitive psychology revolution. And so the, the notion there was that cognition was very, very important, which of course it is. I mean, clearly dumb people are not gonna do all that well. But what happened along that literature was people started equating human capital with a test score. The ultimate expression was this work on signaling in the early 70s, where people said, see, people are just born bright, so bright people do well. Human capital is just a signal for being bright, and it has nothing to do. So the assumption was somehow that being bright was really important. That was a background assumption. Nobody, nobody ever stated, but it was implicit. And of course, what we've learned since then, and, and the cognitive psychologists have really retreated, is that there really are these broad measures, and we know that, this is common sense, right? The things matter <laughs> besides IQ or a test score. But it's not common sense, it's in public policy. So we've had a series of conferences here in Chicago, we're, we're actively working on this now, 
to actually come up with good measures. Because people say, oh, you can measure a test score because we have 100 years of IQ tests. Literally, it's 100 years this year, in the US anyway. And what? We don't have anything about soft skills. You can't measure them. Well, first of all, you can. There's a lot of work. We had a conference on this just a month ago here at, here at Chicago. We brought together psychologists, economists, educators, and we started talking about what does a test score mean? Can we have broader measures? Can we come up with good measures of these so-called soft skills? And you know, there's a whole issue, which is whether or not we can actually by, you know, one of the, one of the strangest things is, for, is, is the way that some of the psychologists elicit these skills. So I go up and ask you, are you an honest person? I mean, <laughs> so he kind of that question is yes, whether I'm honest or dishonest. Of That's course, the problem. and of course, economics says that, and we had it kind of. So the point is, these self-reports can be really misleading, and but psychologists are still using it. So we had a conference with economists. We had like people like Andy Kaplan were, were here, um, Durloff came here, uh, Rustachini, but also some really good psychologists at ETS. And what was interesting was that the psychologists. You'd be shocked by this. I was we're very influenced by the way the economists were using behaviors to measure actual characteristics. So they were using games, computer games, simulation games, or giving people kind of uh, kind of games that economists would frequently give in uh, field experiments. And you know, what's your time preference? But not just asking you, what's your time preference? You know, is three percent, six percent? I mean, that's a meaningless question. But what? But actually using behaviors. So that's an area of huge interaction. So, I, so economics comes in not just in saying these things matter, but showing how to measure them and then develop them. And, and to be honest, the psychologists were extremely excited by this. They, they came out of it. Everybody said, my god, you know, we just didn't know. And look, there was one psychologist who was doing a Markov decision problem of a student trying to decide how to score on a test. Because there are all these questions. You know, how many, I'm gonna, I want a good, good score, even if that's the objective. There's all the strategic behavior that goes into it, and it hadn't been modeled, and it turned out if you did, you got a much richer measure of human skill. And part of it was just how much you stayed with the test. You know, people who were really persistent finished more of the test, or people who are a little bit more far-sighted actually strategically would not tackle the tough questions, would go to the easy ones and come back. So there's a whole literature that's out there. So we're adding, I think economics is adding to it, and this is the, this is the synergy. This wasn't. This wasn't the overlords coming in and saying, you guys are idiots. This is a case where we're saying, this is what you do now, this is what we do now. Look, there's some real gains from trade, and that's what we're doing. And I think that's, but I agree with you that the non-cognitive skill business, it, it, the whole business got kind of lost in the term soft skill. You know, soft and fuzzy, you can't do anything. <laughs> soft doesn't matter. Soft doesn't matter, and soft can't be measured, both. And the point is, is that both of those are really important. And you know, it's obviously IQ is important, but we know that when you put in IQ in an earnings function, you're not explaining that much of the variance. And for that matter, if you're putting in the big five that are currently measured, you're not explaining that much. And we also have measures like time preference, risk aversion, and just now we're putting those into things like earnings functions and asking how important are those independently as other measures. So we have a long way to go before we get a good system but we're moving that direction. So it, it's a much better, much bigger model of what a person is, right? So I, I think that's where things, where economists kind of get, so I think the idea that somehow human capital was just IQ and that all that we were doing was basically just IQ mattered and was genetically determined, those are ideas that were popular 50 years ago and I think they've vanished. And so. What's interesting is, I mean, people in 
many practical areas have kind of recognized this. For yes. example, credit scores, for example, can predict all kinds of behavior, like Correct. the probability of getting in a car accident. Correct. And, numerous other things. Or smoking. Or, or smoking. Taking risky, yes, exactly. It, and, it, and it really is, that. that's kind of the point, is that those kind of behavioral things, the things that people do, exactly. can be very good indicators of other things they're gonna do. Ability in one domain is very related to ability in other domains. Exactly, and so we can use this behavior. That's the key idea, I think, in economics, is we, we can use behaviors to actually infer what these, these these quote traits are. That came as a big surprise to a lot of psychologists. You thought, you know, I'm just gonna give you a questionnaire or a pencil and paper test. But as I said, some of the educational testing service psychologists had more or less groped under this on their own. They were using SimCity to try to see, no seriously, adaptations of how people respond to different situations that they confronted in SimCity. How do you respond? What's your, how risk averse are you? How willing are you to take a plunge and so forth? So I completely agree, it's a great area, but I also, it's an area where economics has a huge role to play. But economists see are sometimes very passive. That's the other part, I would add. Because I think economists sometimes in this area say, okay, we have this division of labor. The psychologists do their work, we do our work, we do cost-benefit calculations, they give us test scores, we put our, their test scores into our equations. And I think what we're really saying, no, we have a general approach towards understanding these things and how you could, what the, what the right, quote, test score should be. And it's probably based on behaviors or earlier behaviors or ways to elicit the behaviors. So I think that's the, uh, I think that's a tremendously, I, you know, some people have accused economics of being an imperial subject. You know, I think Gary Becker liked that idea. And I think that usually comes with a connotation, these arrogant guys are coming in and kind of plopping their, I don't think it's that. I really think it's like a toolbox that actually turns out to be useful for a lot of these people in fields that are totally unrelated to, initially, were thought to be unrelated to economics, but now see the benefit. I mean, just take the concept of opportunity cost. I mean, you say, what's the benefit of an early childhood program? Every economist who passed Econ 101 would say, the benefit of this program is only gonna be measured relative to What's the next best alternative? Which it could be a bad home environment, it could be a great home environment. It's not gonna be surprising that if it's a lousy home, some of these opportunities are gonna be very good. If it's a great home, they're gonna be worthless, they're gonna be dominated. And so that came as a revolution for some people in sociology. Just a year ago, there was a paper published by a sociologist, very grateful to the economist for his comment saying that's important. So it's, it's the alternative opportunity cost notion. I mean, in some sense, what you're saying is the same program could have much more value for one student than another, right. or one participant than another, not because the program does better with them, but because the alternative is better. The alternative is better, exactly. It's always a comparison. And what does it cost? And what's, it, what's the next best alternative? And I think that's, a, that's, a, and that's so basic that no economist, you're not gonna win prizes in economics for saying. Hope not. <laughs> not yet. Well, in some places you might still, but, but the point is, is that outside of economics, that's still considered revolutionary. Yeah. They think of these programs, these other things as just given as, it, 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 it's a funny, funny mentality. And it, it's very statistical, it's very, very limited in thinking about what human choices are and what the options are. So. Anyway, I'm not teaching you anything new, but, no, but, but I think this is, I'm excited, because people get very negative about economics sometimes, right? Economists are some, are some of the hardest people 
in the world, on each other especially. So we, as you know, and you're a great, a great example of it, we, we typically beat up people who give bad arguments. And we beat up ourselves. But somehow, when we go out to the outer world, we realize some very basic points that we would all agree on are pretty important in the outer world. And it's not like they're all idiots out there. It's something like, look, you know, as you say, I think most common sense people will recognize that being conscientious is good. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt talked about grit. I mean, I don't think we need a new measure of grit to say that, I mean, it's nice that we have new measures of grit, but conscientious people, what is Aesop's fable, the tortoise yeah, and the hare? Right. Right. <laughs> this goes back thousands of years. But what's interesting is that somehow in the circles of education and policy, common sense gets lost. I think e economists are actually, can be pretty commonsensical. That's not universally true, but I think, I think the Chicago economics does take you back to asking, well, can you explain it in a very simple way? And can you explain it to yourself? And, and then can you explain it to other people who maybe aren't economists? And you can, I think, a lot of these ideas. Maybe not some really technical concept and a, and a refinement of a solution concept in a game. Maybe that's very abstruse. But something like A versus B versus A versus C, I think most people understand that once you think about it. So anyway, I'm just giving you that as an example. But I think the power of these very basic ideas, I think as economists, we all tend to underrate sometimes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it is. And I think, for example, another example is like, you know, watching TV. Is it bad for a kid to be watching TV? Well, depends on what else he'd be what doing. What else he's doing, exactly. It's not like, well, he'd be better <laughs> off reading a book. But if he wouldn't be reading a book as the alternative, that's pretty much irrelevant exactly. as to whether the TV was a good idea or a bad idea. Exactly. But that basic idea, which I, we completely agree on, is I think not a common point of view in a lot of the so-called government statistics and evaluation bureaus. Now they want to talk about what the treatment effect is of, of watching TV against some unspecified benchmark. <laughs> so it could be plus, it could be minus, it could be zero. It's probably all of those for different people. So. Okay, now yeah. one of the aspects of human capital that I think is important, and again, I think, I think you, you, we, we, you alluded to it earlier, is that unlike physical capital that might be at the workplace, you take your human capital home with you when you go home at night. Right. So if we have a policy change or other change that changes people's attitudes about obtaining human capital for the workplace, that's going to spill over to the household. That's going to change the outcomes for their children and outcomes in the household generally. Sure. And you and I were talking earlier about this and how that fits into some of the debate about how we might address inequality. So for example, one way we could try to address rising inequality, which both you and I would agree, at least when it comes to earnings and income between high and low skilled, there's been a widening gap. There's, right. I think, sure. little doubt of that. Right. And not just a little bit of widening in the gap, but pretty big widening in the gap between your high-skilled and low-skilled. Yeah, the early work showed that definitively, and I think it's held up. I think it's held up for sure. Yeah. And you know, but let's take let's let's assume that that's an issue that's out there. Yes. And so one answer is well, let's just take money away from these guys <laughs> and give it to those guys. Right. And that'll solve the problem, and we're done. And you know, we're back to where we were because we've narrowed the income gap back to its old place, I think a human capital perspective would say, well, wait a minute. 
have you really done what you think you've done or is you, have you even made things better? I mean, maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Well, that's a huge question you're raising. It has multiple aspects and it probably isn't just a human capital question, it's an incentive question. Just because literally, I mean, I think this is the way we attacked poverty 50 years ago in this country. When Johnson started the war on poverty, everybody said we, and Johnson was an idealist in his own way. He really wanted to have poverty ended in his, in his lifetime. He tried everything, job training programs, affirmative action programs, Head Start, he just, a shotgun approach. But, what, and, but a huge amount was transfers, just income transfers. And what people didn't recognize at the time was the effects of these transfers and the effect of kind of creating two cultures and not giving people incentives to engage with a larger society. So I think it was like a, and this is still a common notion, somehow that we want to redistribute from the rich to the poor. Now, you may want to redistribute. There's a whole argument for progressive taxation, and I think that's classical and it's got its issues. But I think what we also want to do, even the modern argument about redistribution respects incentives. And, and usually incentives only for capital. But here we also want to think about expanding incentives for human capital and for people to engage in the rest of the society. So I think the one thing we learned about 50 years ago and the last 30 years, uh, we've, 20 years we've been acting on it, is if you create two populations, one that's kind of just outside the mainstream and just kind of festering on itself versus a, a population that kind of gets integrated into the workplace and gets, it's, everybody's treated alike. You help make your own way. You do the best you can. So an integrated policy that incentivizes people to engage in a larger society, which has incentives, which builds human capital, I think is far more effective than a policy that's actually going to kind of say, oh, we're gonna transfer from the rich to the poor and then create a whole community of uh, slums and so forth. That was tried. I mean, you go to Edinburgh today and in Scotland and you come to this ruined area, they're rebuilding it now, but for 50 years, they literally built this whole set of welfare projects they took people out of what essentially areas near where the jobs were and the docks were, put them on the dole, and created a society that everybody, including the members of that society, thought was a very terrible society. And we've, we've moved against that in American social policy. That's broader than you were aiming at, but I think that's, it's part of the question of giving people incentives, and skills are the way to give people incentives. So I can give you a check and say, you will go home, and, and, but that's telling you two things. You're not good enough to work, you know, you're not in, in here. You you go home. I, you, dignity will be measured by the paycheck I give you, but not by your engagement in the larger society. I think we've learned that's important, and it's also important for building skills, on-the-job training, and just staying integrated. So there are a bunch of questions. I'm not sure you wanted to go on all those. Directions. No, I think that's <laughs> critical because I think, you know, even if we ended up with the same narrowing of the income distribution, let's assume yeah. we, we bought in 100% into that idea, and I'm saying well, we could buy into that 100%, how we got there is gonna be really important because the effect on all these other aspects of life that you talked about before yes. is gonna be different. Correct. Because if I got there by building people's human capital, let's say I took them from 10,000 a year to $15,000 a year, by either giving them a check or I did it by building their human capital, those two cases are gonna be really different because when I got him to 15 by building his human capital, he's gonna have all these 
other benefits from that human capital not that aren't just earnings. Right. That is, household is less likely to be criminal crime, exactly. drug addiction. His kids are going to be more engaged with the school, more engaged with working themselves. Exactly. Tons of advantages. Well, this takes us back to this, just for example, the crime example you were mentioning. There's a paper by Lochner and Moretti that was published in the American Economic Review some 10 years ago, and they were looking directly at what would be the benefit of promoting increasing high school education in terms of reducing crime. Huge benefits. Then, like good economists, they said, well, how, what about alternative policies and putting more police on the beat? Well, that'll also reduce crime. But they found it costly to build them, you know, to train a policeman, to keep a police force. And their estimate, now again, it's a rough estimate, but they were estimating somewhere between five to 10 times more expensive to do a, a policy of just putting police on the beat. That, any strategy would do both, obviously. But, but actually, it was far more expensive than it was to actually just reduce the, it, with the policies they were talking about, promote education for reducing crime to the same extent. High school degrees are really important for reducing crime. And so I, I think, I think it, it, you see, I think part of it really, and I think the psychologists now are moving in that direction. And, and I think many social scientists are, not all. But the idea is that we can motivate people to think that they can actually do something with themselves and achieve something. There's a woman who's a psychologist. I'm not sure how sound her evidence is. Her name is Carol Dweck. I don't know if you've heard about her. But she's, what she's talking about is, and she claims to make a difference. She has limited interventions. But if children are thought, are, are taught, I'm sorry, to think that they have like limited ability and it's genetic and they can't do anything, then they typically are less incentivized. Her strategy is to say, no, the mind is a muscle. You can learn and do it. So by incentivizing children, she's claiming to find substantial test scores. That's an example of just, now the trouble is you don't want to overpromise. You say, no, you're going to be a Mozart or a Beethoven or an Einstein. <laughs> that you're not going to do. But I think, I think the key, and I, I think it's interesting the psychologists who move that route. They really see that incentivizing people in certain ways. So I don't want to endorse her program or attack it. But I think the, the key idea is that we can, I think we can, if we, I think it's a common sense idea and it takes you even outside of what's considered standard economics. But I think it's a public economics. If we engage people in the larger society, they're not, they're, it's, not neither, it's not a question of us versus them. It's a question of all of us are kind of engaged in a common enterprise. And I think the human capital is the way for building that common framework where it integrates people in society, whereas the other policy historically has led to uh, just pure transfers, creating ghettos and I mean, look, all of these ghettos, most of them have been torn down by now, right? The housing projects. I mean, there was a notion you gave a guy a better house, that person would be a better person, and that's a good policy. So we built better houses, and we saw that a lot of those better houses deteriorated pretty rapidly, and there were gangs and crime. So there was a lot of social engineering. But I think the policy that actually is promoting, promoting people's engagement and skills, even from the beginning of life, I think that's got to be the most effective policy. It's, it's dignified. It's not, this is not a hard-nosed economist saying, you know, we're putting a dollar figure on lives. No, it's actually saying we're trying to, we're trying to give dignity to everybody's life. I think that's what human capital does. Skills, more generally. Yeah, but let me let me yeah. let me tell you what I see as an issue there. I mean, we've talked about many aspects of human capital. One of the aspects that we touched on earlier, but I want to come back to, is the human capital is very long-lived. Yes, and exactly. 
therefore, most of these solutions aren't quick fixes. Correct. That is, you know, we're going to make an investment and it's going to play out a benefit maybe over the next 50 years as that person reaps a, maybe a modest gain, but over a very long period of time that adds up to a huge ultimate return. Yes. And so one question comes is, how do we get the political mindset to say this, we're in this for the long haul, that you know, the, the quick fix of saying, okay, I can write you a check tomorrow. How do I, how do I emphasize to people that that quick fix mentality huh. is not going to have the same staying power that this human capital long-term investment's gonna happen? Because that's the way I see a problem for this approach. Even if it's a great idea, it's a great idea that plays out over time. That's what we talked about. Human capital is not a one-time thing. It's, it's right. it builds on itself. Probably bigger effects 10 years from now than it has tomorrow. Correct. Well, one way you can talk about it, I guess, is, is the calculations. If you, if you quantify some of those effects, you can see what the lifetime benefits would be, like in present value of earnings, or present value reduced crime, present, that's all there. But there is something that's true in American policy today, and it's part of what like, the Congressional Budget Office says. And a lot of the accountability, they want a payout period of seven or 10 years, literally. You know, if a program doesn't pay off, then it's not worth while. So they'll literally then get to a very limited goal with a very short horizon. And how we arrived at that is an interesting question. I mean, there's a very short-term notion of accountability and measurement that's taken over in a lot of areas, not just federal government, state and local. So that's part of the problem is that, and where that originally came from, I don't know. I think, uh, I think people are fascinated by, it's kind of funny because there's a little bit of a contradiction because they're interested in test scores. They're interested in test scores only because they think they're gonna predict something really good down the road, but they want an immediate measure. So, so I do think that it's a, it's a big issue of having this kind of over, or, or so narrow window over which the benefits are recognized. But it hasn't always been that way. I mean, and I don't think it has to always be that way. Now, this is more of a political issue in some sense. Think about the highway program. I mean, building a highway, building I-55 or building some, I mean, that was a project that was undertaken 60 years ago. It's had lasting benefits for the last 60 years, except for the potholes. <laughs> but I mean, it's, no, but seriously, it's had a lasting, and, and the Intercontinental Railroad, there were these projects that seemed to have very lasting benefits, the dams, like, you know, Grand Coulee Dam and some of these other projects. I think, in some sense, the accountability movement, which I think may have been influenced by some economists, has taken too narrow a window, maybe, and tried to look for accountability in something that's, but I think we can, I think part of it is just making the case that you do have these long-term benefits, showing that those benefits are there. I don't know what you would think, how would you, how would you circumvent what looks like a very, people are claiming that about US businesses too, right? Being over-investing in short-term gains and not building capital infrastructure. Well, I guess I would push it kind of the way you have, but I, I, one thing that struck me about human capital investment and labor markets in general is that people respond to incentives. That is, when the returns to schooling went up, more people went to school. They weren't necessarily well positioned to do well when they went to school, but they right. tried. They tried. And you know, a lot of them didn't have a good background, so they weren't gonna be very successful, but they made an effort. Right. And so to me, 
I think in some sense you might say, well, people often think you've got to have the government do the long-term lookout for people. I think it's the other way around. I think if you give them the opportunity, not everybody, but a large number of people will take advantage of. So I would focus on opportunity because I think the people in some sense are more far-sighted. I know this is very unpopular in today's economics that likes to think about people as very myopic, but I think a lot of the evidence for the marketplace is that people do look ahead, and a lot of people do. They do, but I think we both agree, and we've both written on this, is that in some cases, supply response has been limited uh, to more. And if you look at the calculations, it looks like money is left on the table and real opportunities are there. And there have been, I mean, I've argued this, you've argued this, I think that it does look like certain groups of people, like take the case even of information for applying to, to, to high, the graduate school, or not to graduate school, just to college. There are these experiments they're very modest in some ways. They're giving people information about how to fill out forms. More people go to college when they do that. That, you could say, I mean, that's not a you know, huge, it's not a huge effect, but it's an effect. Now, well, that's probably information. Issue. I would put that in the opportunity point. Yeah. Because opportunity is not just the theoretical opportunity, it's the practical opportunity. Correct. That people actually have something that they will take advantage Correct. of. Correct. So when you put that in their opportunity set, whether or not that should be subsidized by governments or private organizations uh, is, an, is another issue. But it's definitely partly an information issue, but it's also partly preparedness. So if you grow up in a family, like take a kid born in a barrio in, uh, say, Los Angeles. Kids uh, growing up speaks only Spanish for the first five years. Then he's dumped into a school, which is English speaking or something of the sort. Maybe dumped in with kids who actually have had listened to reading and writing uh, they had some idea of being read to. They know a lot of words. We do know that some of those kids really start school relatively disadvantaged. And then there's a larger question is, should we do something about that? Is that a case for public subsidy? I, I don't think it's only public subsidy, but I think there really is a sense in which we could get higher returns for those kids if they were given those opportunities, but on a voluntary basis, right? So. So there's a very subtle line. I mean, this is something I wrestle with a lot, which is, <laughs> I mean, that's one form would say there's a credit constraint. You can't borrow. So the family simply can't borrow. The kid doesn't go to college. That's part of the story. And so that would be a basis where we could say there could be some intervention. A second would be some of this information. You know, they literally just don't know. We could provide that information. Schools could provide that. The third is slightly more subtle and, and very, very troubling, especially for libertarians. I remember talking to Richard Epstein about this years ago. And namely, if the parents don't care about the kids, or he came in an extreme case, the parents are abusive. So in society, we typically will take kids away or we will intervene very actively if the parents are beating them. But then there's something that's in between, more like the Amish, the Amish, the Amish in, in Pennsylvania they don't want their kids to go beyond the eighth grade. And they'll shun them, they'll, they'll isolate them. So now you're asking, should those parents have the right to deny their kids the opportunity to go to high school or make a huge cost? And I don't think there's a simple answer. No, but this gets back to your earlier point, depends on what the alternative is. Correct. I mean, most of the alternative places that we've come up in the past, for once we take you out of your family, Oh, a terrible. Uh, pretty bad. No, no, exactly. So that was something that goes back to classical philosophy. Right? Plato said, well, how do we equalize families? How do we equalize opportunity? We put state orphanages. Everybody goes to, no, we tried that. We tried that with the American Indians, the Aboriginal. We tried it in Romania. And that's terrible. 
There is everything we know about the family is you've got to work with the family, you've got to take what's there. But all I'm making a more narrow point, which is basically the structure should be that we, we, we should recognize that there may be areas where we could maybe offer better than what the kids have. And then there's a, there's a redistributive issue here. Should we intervene in that way? I, I would argue, I mean, there's a passionate argument now. It comes back to your point about, you know, there's a, well, I shouldn't mention names now, but there's one economist slash sociologist who says, oh, we can solve all these problems by transferring money to kids and money matters and we should just give more checks and he's been funded by foundations to give millions of dollars. And so we'll have an experiment soon, assuming it stays the course. But in some sense, it just doesn't get to the core of what parenting is about and what seems to be the deficiency. It's not just money. Part of it's money, but you could have money. I mean, there's a famous experiment that was done maybe 20 years ago on Indian reservation. And this Indian reservation, kind of an experiment, suddenly opened a casino. And suddenly everybody in the, in the casino, everybody in the reservation got uh, money. And suddenly high school graduation rates started rising. So you said, see, if you get more money, they... Well, then it turned out in that particular study that in, if you look closely at what was going on, kids who got graduated high school were given a bonus for graduating high school. <laughs> so a lot of it was just a straight incentive. So it's an open question. I'm sure money matters. But I don't know if it's the first order thing. I think, yeah, money matters, but the incentives to the kid and getting, so it's a subtle issue. You would agree if they yeah. don't really know. Some people claim that if you go out to Inglewood here, there are a lot of kids who simply don't know they have better opportunities. I don't know if that's really true. I, I think that may be, may be true, that you build a story, they just, you know, I'm black or I'm Hispanic, I can't possibly succeed. If, in fact, there are people like that, then somehow we've got to get a message there that gives them a sense that there is an opportunity. Otherwise, we are going to create a, a ghetto, a ghetto, an enclave. So I don't know how you would approach that, actually. I'd oh, I, I guess I, I go back to, I mean, I've been working on a paper that Gary and I were working on for a while, which is persuasion. And, you know, and economics tells us that persuasion can make a difference, that sure. you can influence people's decisions. We tend to think of these rational optimizing agents who do exactly what they're supposed to do on the blackboard. But in fact, if you work out the economics more fully, you realize that's not how people ought to behave. They sure. ought to do a lot of things and they should be influenced. So I think we have to take advantage of that and try to influence people's right. behavior. Uh, and I think a big part- But you're part getting of, very close now. See, what if I tell you I want people to be more farsighted? So I want to lower their discount rate. Now we're getting really close to social engineering and saying, ah, you know, I want everybody to be like me. I want to be very farsighted and they should be like me. And so you, you get to a fine line, right? Where, and so there's a question where the psychological traits become preferences. And <laughs> it's dangerous. It, well, it's dangerous, but maybe it isn't. See, that's a question I always think about. Uh, I remember talking in Ireland many years ago now, uh, 10 years ago, not that many. But I was talking about some of these arguments for early childhood. And I thought, you know, conscientiousness, I mean, a lot of these traits were good. And somebody from the audience said, look, our national poet, or one of their national poets, was Brendan Bayon, who was a famous drunk, known to be drunk. He said, if, if he had listened, if he had been trained by you or he had listened to you, then he wouldn't have done such great poetry. And so you get to this fine line and say, well, I'm not telling Brendan Bayon what to be. I think there's a difference between having him uh, kind of grow up mechanically, just be a drunk, and have the option to be drunk. I mean, a lot of people choose. They're very smart, you know, the, 
Rolling Stones and the Beatles, they chose different lifestyles, but they had the choice to do it. So if they want to be drunks, that's their choice. But I don't think we want people to be fated to be drunks, like what seems to be in a lot of American Indian reservations and so So there's a fine line. It's a gr I'd love to talk to you about this no, question. But I think, but this gets back to our, some of our points from before though, right? Because if you start thinking about educational opportunities for different groups, I mean, I grew up in the wrong place. My educational opportunities are pretty dim. I mean, and before I really had the chance to decide that, hey, I'd rather grow up in some other neighborhood, I'm, I'm, I am where my parents are located. Right, and, exactly. You know, what can we do to help those people, you know, and help those families? Yeah, I think what we can do is offer information, offer guidance, offer, see, I, part of it, I think, really is a case for payment in kind. You may not like that. Normally, economists don't like the argument of payment in kind. But here's a case where, like information, is that payment in kind or not? I think it is, right? I'm giving them something they didn't know. So I'm telling a kid in the ghetto, look, a lot of people, you know, there's a premium. You can do very well, and the world is not all a plot against you. And there are opportunities out there. So I would argue that some of that information, and also at least giving them the option, well, option, I would say you have to give them the option to exactly. get the information. Because exactly. I don't want to live in a world in which I give Jim the right to tell Kevin what information he should Correct. get. Yeah. That's, that opens up a lot of no, malincentives no. problems. But Correct. I think you need to have that option out there. You need a place to go. I mean, I think about it, you know, I'll use a very silly example, but it's, you know, I, the way I think about the supermarket. The supermarket influences my choices of what to buy all the time by deciding what shop products they're going to put on the shelf. Oh, for sure, right. But That's I get legitimate. to choose which supermarket I go to. <laughs> and if I had a supermarket where they constantly put things on there that were bad for me and I didn't like, I would go to another supermarket. No, and exactly. therefore, that pers I get persuaded by them, but I allow myself to be persuaded because... I've found that they do a deep, I like that supermarket. When they put a new product on the shelf, it's worth trying often. And I agree. how do we offer that for well, families see, trying to choose well, I education? Think, Where, see, there is an issue there, which is fine. If you think of a little kid, like if you take a baby, one, one day old, that kid's not going to be making very many choices. No. Their parents are going to be making all those choices for them. And then the question becomes... Get to choose your parents? Yeah, well, <laughs> we agree. You know, I remember telling, um, I remember long ago when Summers was still Assistant Secretary of Treasury, he used to invite economists down. You probably went down there. Yeah. I went down there and gave a seminar. I was talking about this. I said, well, might, we might want to do something, you know, in early child. This is a long time ago, early child care. He said, that's not Chicago. I said, no, it's an incomplete market. I can't buy my parents. In fact, I wouldn't even know what I would want, probably, when I'm the homunculus that would be in a thought experiment. So I think, um, no, there is an issue about trying to shape. I think we really want to provide at least the options available to people and the information. And in some sense, it's a very fine line, though, because if parents are really protecting their or sheltering their kids from these opportunities or denying the kids by their own choice, then we have a big trade-off between what's the, then we get into be social planners. Are we talking about the welfare of the kid? And should we intervene in the family? I think if we intervene in the family, it has to be in a voluntaristic way. We say, look, you can do what you want, but if you do this for your kid, it's somewhat, so persuasion. Yeah. I'd say a persuasion policy. And I think, I think something where you persuade and inform, and then you have debates about the best way to persuade. 
That's the multiple society approach, which would, which would not, it, plural society that would not force the hand of anybody in any particular track. I agree with you. I don't want one program or one dictator or anything <laughs> of the sort. That's, we've learned that that's pretty dangerous, right? <laughs> well, I mean, if you just think about it, I mean, even if they could do all these great things, why would they? Right. If I had that power, why would I wield it in that particular form? I mean, oh, correct. Yeah. We, we just know that wouldn't be the incentive. And no, in most cases they would use it for other purposes. I mean, like, you'd get something like uh, Hitler Youth or some kind of, well, some extremist organization for a purpose which, has, which is pretty pernicious, for a larger goal, which probably wouldn't be for their goal. So that's why I'm really reluctant, and I think it's a general point. I don't think, I think a point that most economists would you want plural, you want choice out there, but there still is a sense. And that's why I go back to uh, some of these questions about just exactly how would you find the opportunity set and how should we expand it? I, I think these are really tough questions and you know, it gets back to the whole notion we started with when we talked about family. I mean, families aren't perfect. No. But they're better than most of the alternatives, the alternatives. we can come up with. Exactly, that's the one thing we've learned. There, were, there was something called the Phoenix School. You heard about this school, it's in, um, it was in Arizona, it was an Indian school. Uh, it was, so it was really the 1920s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs had a policy of taking Indian children out of their homes and educating them. So the idea was you're gonna turn these people into good. Plato's approach. Exactly, no, and what happened? You created a whole generation of drunks, derelicts, people who were truly disengaged from society, a total failure. And we know that, the Australians tried it, the Canadians tried it, so uh, I actually was in Canada a, f a few years ago and I was at a, a, f a group working with Indians and uh, they said, they asked me, I couldn't answer the question, they asked me, said, what would you do? How would you teach parenting to a group of people who've never had parents? <laughs> That's a pretty tough, uh, it's a long issue, you know, you'd get parents engaged, you'd probably work with them and so you'd have visits and so forth. So it's, a, it's an issue that uh, it's sensitive. But I think we do know the extreme is bad. Now, I got a question for you. Sure. I just thought about this off the top of my head. I mean, a lot of work in economics these days is working on what we call mechanism design. Sure, right. Has anybody thought about this as a mechanism design problem, about how we would design a mechanism that would achieve some of the things that you and I have been talking about here that, you know. I've been trying, I'm not the best person. Think like principal agent issues and That's all. what I'm asking, I mean, it's yeah. a me classic mechanism design problem. I got private information, I Correct. have incentives that don't necessarily align with the overall outcomes I'm trying to accomplish. I Correct. got usual mechanism design type problems, so. Exactly, no, in, in, there's a form of that that occurs just with a parent-child interaction. The parent is more farsighted than the child. So the child is not uh, fully investing and maybe taking account of school, but the parent operates under imperfect information. There is some work on trying, people trying to do that. It's in its infancy though, no pun intended. It's really starting. Uh, it's really starting. But it's exactly an area, a ripe area for mechanism design. And thinking more broadly about how you would persuade people. How would you have efficient mechanism? And, and part of it would be political constraints too, right? To act in a way that's non-intrusive, so you're not forcing anybody to do anything, and yet still would kind of move people in that right direction, or a direction that ex post they might think of they were later. They would, 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 would think it's a good thing to do. But we still keep playing with this little fire, and you don't want to go there either. I don't think anybody really wants to go there, but I actually kind of do, which is to say, well, like take your work on habit formation. I mean, you can take Becker and Murphy, and that's, 
that's also a matter of forming preferences, right? Absolutely. So I could form preferences in such a way that I give people experiences in such a way that they could change. And so the question is, I, I could build mechanisms around your setting. So now, which preference should I use? The preference, suppose a person would have like a different perception of this having gone through some training program or have just found out information. They would choose to do something differently if they knew about it. So put uncertainty in your model. I don't really know how good morphine is or how good cocaine is. So if I deny, or, or you know, one of the policies that people came out in response to your paper was actually, if that was true, we might want to give people more information about how good it was and how much you would like it because it would be so hard to get away and withdrawal would be so hard. So I think, I think there's a question of trying to get a mechanism and then you would ask, what's the right criterion? Should it, be, should it be the person's preference after they've made the choice or before they made the choice? And that's another whole tough question, right? Yeah, it is. And, but you know, one thing, and Gary and I have done some work on this as well, which is parents do engage in this kind of behavior themselves. And they, form, they help form their child's preferences oh, all the time. No, now, absolutely. The one thing that I think you and I would both count on there is the altruism that the parent has the limits right. the nefarious things that you might do when given that power. Yeah, but if you have something, uh, if you have some people living in, uh, in some uh, commune where they're taking or waging war on the human race or, yeah. or, or, or raised in some racist or, or violent cult, then the parents, very same kind of parents, and not the same parents, but the very same kind of mechanisms could really wreak harm on the child. So, there is a larger question, but there, I agree with you. There's a lot of scope for integrating the uh, for economics of incentives in here and thinking about what effective mechanism designs might be. But it would be good. Now, I agree with you. The stuff that you've done is very important, and it's preference formation. It is. I mean, I think, I think that's an interesting aspect of these problems. But should children be allowed, should parents be allowed to impose their preferences on the kid? Suppose the kid says, I don't want to be. It's I, right now, your attitude is faced with that versus the stark alternative. I agree. No, I much better. It's I agree. better than the stark alternative. Is I, there a modest alternative yes. that's better? That may be the case. That may be the case. I agree with you. So I agree with you. It's couched too, broad, too, too crudely. It's not that either or. And I completely agree that the one lesson we've learned is we want to work with families. And we've got to have voluntary participation. I mean, I can tell a parent to read to the kid. I can have the blimp, Goodyear blimp flying over Chicago saying, read to your kid. There's all this work now where people are saying you should you know, have cell phones and you get a message every five minutes, read to your kid or something. Okay, that's all fine. But that's not quite, I think, what we want. I think we kind of want to develop maybe a society that's a little more internally motivated. And, but then there is an issue. So there is an issue about exactly where we head this. But I would get back to the thing we talked about before, which is, uh, this complementarity, let's call it, across different avenues of life on the human capital side. If, Correct. If I, can, if I can not force you to do it, but I can give you the incentive to develop the human capital to do one thing, that's probably going to help me along the other goals as well. And that, to me, that's why I always come back to human capital as the place to look, because I know it's going to have those broad-based benefits. That when I increase your earnings by giving you more human capital, I can count on you taking that human capital home at night and using it to do your finances better and using it to 
teach your kids better and using it to have better health and using it for all those other activities, which is, to me is yeah. why I keep coming back to that is oh, it has where massive, I focus. So massive synergies, massive complementarities across many stages of life, the workplace to the home, the home coming into the workplace, right? And so, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's one of the benefits. But people don't, people have not traditionally, well, at least traditionally in terms of discussions, these things are minimized. These kinds of, these aspects of human capital are not on the table. I'm not talking here, and I'm talking about among economists, but in the larger policy discussion, these things are viewed as like schooling and bricks and mortar, and all of this is very... Test scores. Test scores. If you're not doing better on the test scores, you're not... You're not doing well. You're not doing well. And, and, and I think we know much better than that now. So. Now, I, let me ask one another, sure. get a final aspect of human capital sure. that I always think of important is the cumulative nature of human capital. That yes. Cumulative human capital helps produce human capital. Correct. That's true at a country level where when you have a more human capital in the population, it can help create the next generation of human capital. Right. But it's also true with an individual, that yes. if an individual hasn't accumulated human capital by this point in their life, it's harder to then add exactly. to it. Exactly. That's one of the lessons that comes out of the human capital approach, that literally, I mean, the term sometimes uses dynamic complementarity, but what it really means, it gets harder and harder to remediate at older ages. It's harder to learn something completely new. And if you start with a low skill base when you're in your middle age, you're just not going to adapt that well. I mean, we tried this with job training programs for people who are, you know, in their mid-40s when steel mills closed. A lot of those guys who were laid off from a steel mill simply didn't want, you know, they just, they found it hard to learn. They didn't want to learn how to program. They didn't, so, but a kid, a baby, a kid who's six, three months old, six months old, six years old, is much more flexible. And so we know that programs that are operating earlier, and that's the same phenomena you're talking about, is that it's much, much harder. So there's an, interesting, there's an interesting business here. You know, the so-called Matthew effect people talk about. So to those who are given, more will be given. It's true that somebody who is highly educated can generally benefit more, right? So we know that actually, even among retired people, or even people in the late 60s, the BLS had this study about who was engaged in learning. 60-year-old, 65-year-old accountants and doctors and people who were, they were actively engaging and, and taking courses, online courses, taking, you know, recertification courses, trying to get current in their fields. Partly because of intellectual curiosity, but partly for staying active in their field. But that kind of training really dies off rapidly at that age for less educated people. And so it gets very difficult to change. And uh, that's one of the hard lessons in life. Uh, but you're actually right. So I would use the phrase skills beget skills, and these things are dynamic. And they really create an opportunity, I think, for, uh, they create the platform for learning more. So it's, it may be even an unstable process in the sense, right, we just, we keep learning and we learn more and it gets easier to learn. And so it's just all this, something like an increasing returns phenomenon. Right? Now, there's a couple of things I want to tie into that, sure. just as the last couple of things. One is, Let's assume we could solve our earlier problems and we could figure out the right way, the right way in quotes, to help the younger, the new, the, the younger people, the right. people coming in, the children in the household, and we, wow, we got that problem solved. Sure. Right. But people live a long time. So we have this pipeline of people, maybe who we failed. Let's say we failed. They didn't fail, we failed them. They're right. 30 years old. Yes. They've 
didn't get the education they should have gotten. They didn't get the other skills they should have gotten. Maybe it's all our fault. Let's just assume it's all our fault. We, is, we yeah. did. They're 30. What do we do? Well, I, I think what I would say, I mean, it's probably less of a skill-based policy at that point because the learning may not be as effective. But in terms of this business of engagement, I think you incentivize them to work and you acquire the skills. I mean, this is something, you know, Ned Phelps and many, many people, people around Gary, yourself, many people have written on this notion. And that is, is it better to pay people to just kind of be idle? Or to, you know, say, well, look, maybe you're not quite up to par in terms of the wage. We can give you an extra incentive. So instead of paying you a full dollar just to work, we might pay you 30 cents more to work that may make up the difference between your lower level of productivity and what might be required on the job and make you more employable. And it would engage you, and I think would have a huge set of social benefits. Something like the Earned Income Tax Program does exactly that. It's giving people incentives to work. So I would say that it, I think that the incentive-based approach, which is engaging people rather than kind of putting them off to the sideline, is going to be far more effective. And I think there would be some learning by doing, but frankly, most of the estimates I've seen suggest it's not that big. Once you get to that point. Once you get to that point. Now, yeah. let, me, let, me talk, let me talk about sure. a couple of ideas that come to my mind and get your reaction to those ideas. One of which is very closely related is, is this idea of, call it a demand side policy, that yes. we're gonna drag, you know, and, and, and to some extent, we saw that Sweden did this they wanted to raise the wage of women and they did it to some extent with a demand side policy where they said we're going to find tons of jobs for to hire women into the government to do right. child care and other things and they were very successful at improving labor market opportunities for women partly through those kind of policies right so one idea would be to try to do something similar to that to drag in get more male participation, low-skilled males. Is there, is there an analog there? Let me throw that one out. Let me well, I, I want to separate make work. You mentioned No, I don't, want to, I don't want to make work is maybe not, but, but is there something that can work to bring people into the labor market as a way of raising their earnings as opposed to giving them higher, more money and pushing them effectively out? Well, you can make market. them more, more attractive to employers. I mean, yeah, exactly. The cost to them is, is, the cost to the employer is lower. It's not the nominal wage, it's the wage so there'd be, I wouldn't want to call it a subsidy, I guess it would be a subsidy in some sense. There would be an incentive given that would reckon, so if we have a minimum wage, I mean, it's a whole issue whether we should, but suppose you have a minimum wage and some workers simply aren't at that level of ability, uh, they, they simply aren't gonna make up. Then the question is if we want them to have a certain level of income, should we just have all that in transfer or should we give them that fraction of the income they would get to incentivize them and their employer to hire them to get the job, so to, to take the job. So I think, I think there's a big gain to be made by kind of exploiting those margins. That's just simple economics. Right? I agree, I agree. And that, that is a situation where we're not, and a lot of these people who are not working are not necessarily families with children. A lot of these are people who are not oh. working at all. In fact, the majority of them are, are in, in, for at least among the males in that group that aren't working, would require a different kind of program, what it, what program. It would affect them and draw them into the labor market. Right. Let me give you a second policy, though, that I think... But by the way, I wouldn't say we always want to bring everybody into the labor market, though. There is a question. That's another hotly debated topic, which is not completely clear. You could argue, and some people have argued, that it might be much better in some cases for the people to stay at home. Especially, for example, if it's women raising kids and they're playing a role. 
that that non-market productivity frequently doesn't get counted as something really positive. And uh, some people would argue that's maybe neglected. I'm very suspicious of some of these determinants that we have to have exactly X percent of people working as if formal employment is actually the whole productivity in the economy. Yeah, I, I think your, your term earlier, engaged, is engaged. really the key. They exactly. have to be engaged, engaged in, in a viable activity, whether it's in the activity. household, whether it's exactly. in the marketplace, exactly. whatever it is. Now, let me come back, and that's, I think, where the Swedes kind of overdid it. Overdid it, <laughs> it. But let's, Yeah, no, I knew somebody who was paid, the wife was paid, the kid had an epilepsy, and the wife was paid to look after her kid. Yeah. So she was literally a formal employee of the state of, 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 of the government of Sweden to actually <laughs> to look at after her own kid, which is what she would have had anyway. And there was a lot of deadweight loss and collecting taxes and raving. So anyway, there was a whole issue as well. It was but a good thing. Let me give you a second one that I think people often miss that's also important, which is let's assume we're successful at helping people at the younger ages who are more malleable, who really could yeah. take advantage of these opportunities. That is indirectly going to help the older, less educated, less skilled people by eliminating comp some competition for them in the labor market. That is reducing the supply of those less of unskilled, of unskilled workers, right. which will sure. benefit the people who maybe whose skills you couldn't augment. That Correct. is, you don't have to pull everybody out of the low Correct. skilled pool to help everybody in the low skilled pool. No, because, that would be a benefit. You would take kids. I mean, this is something that's going to be really true, like, for example, in China right now, when you have like a declining population, an aging population. If you educate the Chinese workforce and you get more educated kids, you're going to have less competition for these older, unskilled, these are not just all the retired, so it's not all a retirement yep. issue. And at the same time, you're going to be able to support this, uh, the social infrastructure for you know, maintaining the retirement. So there are benefits that percolate across the, the skill market, and people typically don't look at those. I agree. I think that's an important point because you know people say, well, this this human capital strategy is going to fail because I can't help everybody. There's a bunch of people who can't. I ah. can't move, and the point is, they get helped when you move other people. Correct. And I think that's often forgotten. And one thing I think we've learned is that these supply and demand dynamics matter in these markets. Oh, for sure. When you have more unskilled workers, the unskilled wage is going to go down. When you have more skilled workers, the un relative to unskilled, it's going to move the opposite way. Right. And we sometimes forget that in policy. Right. Now, I think, let's see what you're getting at. I mean, think about the, the take a very literal version of this. Think about all of the um, calculations and debates that go on in the U.S. Treasury where they won't even take into account any incentive response of a tax increase or a tax change. So I mean, what's the name of it? There's a name given for this where they're basically- Dynamic scoring. Scoring, something like, yeah. So a dynamic score. But it's basically something so alien that incentives are there. But if you look at labor market effects or just general market effects, they're huge. And it's very difficult to communicate those. And I think it may be getting harder in the public dialogue. People want very simple answers, very naive answers about we're going to fix inequality, we're going to fix this or fix that, without looking at all of the larger implications within the market and then the larger society. One last thing, and then I'll, then I'll shut up, which is the, <laughs> the, the, in economics, we might be moving the wrong way there, too, where there's more of this emphasis on 
narrow treatment effects and less emphasis on embedding that in a more fuller model of how the economy works. Traditionally, the area where economists have added, I think, a lot of insight to say, well, you can't stop at this step one. You have to work out how it all percolates through the yes. marketplace. If anything, I think in economics, we're moving away from that. I think I'm so worried too. about that. Well, I think, you see, this is an issue that actually is, a, it, this deserves almost a separate discussion. And that is that there, I think what's happened is a kind of a pathological development in economics and in larger social, so-called social evaluation. The so-called causal inference literature has adopted this point of view of a very narrow dynamic, a very narrow uh, focus on what are called treatment effects. We have this program. The idea is that a randomized trial at the individual level gives you ideal data. And uh, we know that, a, that in some cases it does. I can learn something about a drug. If I give you rent, I try a group of drugs on various patients, I can see whether it's helpful or hurtful in various diseases. But in something like education or in a lot of these other programs, I mean, there was an example of many years ago where somebody wanted to sort of treat uh, uh, the uh, expansion of the, uh, uh, of the uh, Indonesian educational system as some kind of, you know, randomized event or some exogenous event. And we could see, well, there were more schools were built and therefore, what was the effect of that on uh, the larger, on, on the wages of, uh, and the, the outcome of children? Well, what it failed to do was recognize the general equilibrium effects. You had more, you had more educated people, but they started competing down. There were short run effects on that. It turned, out as, it turned out the same money that financed the schools financed more infrastructure and capital. So it changed everything. So the, the evaluation that emerged was meaningless. And, but I think this is something where economics may have actually done some harm. And I'll tell you why. I think. I, I, this is my current view of this. And that is, like 70 years ago, there was this big discovery in economics. I think it was an economist discovery about simultaneous equations bias reverse causality, we formalized that. It was done here, it was done, at, uh, done in economics, Havelmo's famous work, 71 years ago it was published. But what happened was, at that time, all those people were interested in saying, look, there is a reverse causation. So, so X causes Y, but it could be that Y causes X. So they wanted to model that. Somewhere down the trail, and this is, I think, where the statisticians have entered and the economists have been too slavishly taking the statisticians. Economists are aware, we want to know well, Y causes X, X causes Y. We want to put those two together. We want to build a model, we want to understand that. But slowly, 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 a lot of economists have bought into the idea that their job in life is to run a regression where Y is regressed on X, and X is not uncorrelated with epsilon. So they come up with a regression coefficient beta. They don't know what it is, they don't know what it means, but they're confident that it's not subject to bias. And as the old joke goes, any least squares estimator is unbiased for itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's not something that's, uh, so, so I think what's happened is a lot of younger economists, and a lot of, not all, not all, there's, there's pushback, but there is this whole notion of this treatment effect. It's very micro in, in development, this big debate. Uh, you know, Deaton, Duflo, there were a lot of debates about exactly this question. And in the World Bank now, there's the whole group of the randomistas who say, you know, we're going, to, we're going to try to evaluate on a sound basis a policy for something like investment programs in, in India. 
And are, what are we gonna do there? Well, are we gonna run a randomized trial and say, here, I built a, I built a one mile of a road in this town, that's gonna tell me what the benefit is of adding one million miles or 100,000. So there really is a sense in which the problem becomes simplified and it's, it's very beguiling. You know that there's legislation, the Affordable Care Act, among one of its many features, adopted this requirement that all, all work in medical economics and medical science be, be done by randomized trials where the preference be given to those. And all the use of non-experimental data and the ideas of these feedbacks and mechanisms, all that got shelved off to the side. And so people, the model has become, I'm running a trial. I'm running a randomized trial. These people are randomly assigned and that's the model. So people are saying, here's treatment and here's control. You say, okay, but wait, what's the treatment? What's the control? And how do these things feed back? And, and so, how's that gonna correspond to what actually happens if actually I implement happen? this thing? Right, so people will kind of recognize that. They say, well, at least I, I've seen many people give me statements, this is a methodologically correct approach. And what they mean is, I'm pretty confident of my X and a regression of Y on X uh, with a coefficient of beta in front of the X, that my X is not uncorrelated, is uncorrelated, sorry, not, not dependent on some unobservable. But to the point of not asking exactly what the effect is they'd be estimating if it were. And so you, it's sometimes just completely the wrong question. I'll give you an example that takes us back to early childhood. This is a program, a, a recent study of Head Start. So many people said that Head Start doesn't work. Head Start ran a randomized controlled trial. They, they literally had this, and it's just published like three or four years ago now. The main finding from the study is, if you do what's called an intent to treat analysis, Head Start had weak or no effect whatsoever. But then what people started realizing, and this is an old point, I'd written on this early in a different setting, but others had talked about this as well. Look, it really depends, like we were saying, what the alternative was. So it turned out that people were randomly denied access to a given Head Start Center. Well, a lot of the people who were randomly denied access found another Head Start Center. <laughs> so, or found something maybe even higher quality. Or so what they were doing was comparing Head Start sometimes to Head Start, or maybe Head Start to something really close to Head Start. And when people started separating Head Start versus like staying at home in a very disadvantaged environment, it looked a lot better. I'm not saying it's a miracle or anything, but that's an example of what you're Well, saying. because what you're estimating is the effect of denying them access, which may not be the effect of Head Start. It I mean, may not it, be. It, it, that, exactly. that's really the problem. Exactly, I mean, so that's a very simple example. So even without all of these general equilibrium effects, and there would be additional general equilibrium effects of denying, so I think that's the part where, that I would say any good economist would know that. But it came as amazing insight, right? again, without mentioning names, among certain economists, say, well, what's the value? what was their home environment like? Ah, that's a great idea. And now it's, now it's in the paper, that's good. And it, it, and it changes the way you think about these things. So it's, it's this against the next best. So I do think that the treatment effect mentality has kind of gotten to be a cult, where people are thinking, I, here I'm running a, I use a certain methodology, I use a certain estimator, I use a certain this or that, and that produces some number without being incumbent on them to explain what it answers, why it's interesting, what its problems might be. Yeah. It's, just, it's the social science that gets kind of thrown away here. Exactly, exactly. I mean, they can come back and say, well, what we really estimated was the effect 
on the treated, which then, which you probably did ultimately estimate, but is that at all what we were interested right. in? Right. Does that correspond to the question we were trying to ask? Exactly, and it's mm. misinterpreted. If I'm, I'll give you another example. There was a, there was a, pro, a paper that was doing work in India about adding, a, adding these uh, loan programs for uh, uh, lending finance for disadvantaged uh, women in India. And uh, they wanted to do a randomized trial to see whether these programs work. And so one study that came out by a prominent person said, okay, they randomized and they found out they had no effect whatsoever. But then people looked at the data and they said, wait, there were 40 other programs. If they were randomized out, the people denied access to this program had 40 other programs to go to. And a lot of them chose to do it. So it was really lending finance versus lending finance, not lending finance versus no lending finance. Or the few people who didn't do it were probably the people who least benefited and therefore a very atypical population. Exactly. So, so, so I think it, it, this just gets back to the point where I think sometimes economists have been too eager to give up the economics. I think there was a generation. Beach to the choir on that one. <laughs> well, no, but I think there was a generation of economists that actually young economists, and they're still active, there's still a lot of them, without mentioning names, I think we all know some of these people, who actually really are quite hostile to the idea, saying, I don't wanna, I don't wanna get the economics in the way, I don't wanna build all these models. I, it's, not, it's not estimating a structural model, that's got its problems by itself. But I'm talking about just using a framework of interpretation. I think that's starting to move out of the mainstream, but for quite a while it was pretty dominant, right? Here's my effect. Here's my treatment effect. God knows what it meant, but at least X is not correlated with U or Exelon. <laughs> I got an accurate estimate of something. Whether I care about it or not, that's exactly. a different question. And that's not my job. My, I'm kind of a statistician, and my job is to make sure I get my coefficient, whatever right. it is. But then often people run out and apply it as if it's measuring something very different and make conclusions oh, exactly. as if it's making something different. No, you see that among a lot of young economists, along a lot of economists, but I would say in a certain crowd, They'll come up with an estimate, and among friends and among economists, they'll say, ah, this isn't causal, I can't say anything. When they go to the press, when they go out to the newspapers, when they get on their YouTube videos, it's causal. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll testify before Congress and tell the president this. And I think it's an occupational hazard that uh, maybe people just maybe misuse their authority and that way, I don't know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be overly negative. But I do think there's enormous value in asking the basic question, so what? What does this mean? What are you doing? And that's what I think economics is about, really. So what you're saying is there's a lot of good, and what we've heard over the conversation here, there's a lot economics can add. <coughs> I think so. And there's a lot we can do better than we're doing today. Yeah, every time I get depressed about economics, I mean, sometimes go to seminars, I see what people are doing, I say, this, this isn't going anywhere. Then all I have to do is get outside economics and say, holy smoke. Without any of the elaborate stuff, if you just go and ask a very simple question and organize your thinking this way, using simple economic principles, it's far more effective than what's going on in most environments. It's, it's, it doesn't look so good until you consider the alternative. Exactly. That's the, the whole message the whole <laughs> That's day. That's the message, exactly. All right. Uh, Jim, very thank good. you very much. This has been great. Okay, I it's good. It. Okay, thank you. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, 
visit bfi.uchicago.edu.